Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains are, will, and need to become closer together. We're going to try and focus on networking topics. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. Good day to you. This episode of The Quantum Divide is a monologue from me, Dan Holm, uh, on post-quantum cryptography. And I'm doing this because it, the importance of this technology in the coming uh, few years. And... The Quantum Divide is a, is a networking podcast, and we haven't really started on security yet. And this is one of the main use cases of quantum technology in terms of the rate at which it's going to hit the market, especially in the networking domain. I'm going to start with PQC, post-quantum cryptography, which is it's almost a, adjacent to quantum rather than quantum itself, but it warrants a, a session to talk through it because... The reason for post-quantum cryptography, the whole concept behind PQC has been built because of quantum computers. So let me start with, first of all, describing what I mean by that. So the, the quantum computing world is accelerating the capacity of quantum computers to be able to run algorithms that can solve um, very niche types of problems, including highly parallelized algorithms are using the quantum physics of the qubit and basically this capability is giving those with a quantum computer the ability to essentially break the current cryptography used in a large part of uh, applications and end-to-end communication across the internet and private networks today however the technology is not there yet the technology is not yet there yet. It's on the horizon. So I'm just going to dig into that a little bit for you. And I'm bound to make some mistakes because this is not my natural field, but I'm fascinated by it. So feel free to send me an email or something and tell me where I was wrong. It might open up doors for later episodes of this podcast. So essentially, the reason PQC exists is... Because the RSA 2048 ECC and the Diffie-Hellman protocols could all be broken using a thing called Shaw's algorithm or the Grover search algorithm. So these are two different algorithms. The Grover algorithm is a search algorithm which allows to search through unstructured data in an exponentially improved way over the classical methods. And Shaw's algorithm is... Similar in that it gives an exponential, uh, it's utilizing the exponential problem solving capability of a quantum computer to perform essentially what is called the integer factorization problem. And that's where two large prime numbers are taken, multiplied together, and it creates a very large integer. That is the premise of the algorithm. And Shaw's algorithm can do that in reverse. So why is that mathematical? calculation, which sounds very simple, albeit with very large numbers. Why is that such an issue for RSA? Essentially, because the 
quantum computers can perform calculations in parallel and efficiently factor these large numbers, which form the basis for the security of these classical algorithms. This necessitates the development of new encryption methods that can withstand attacks from quantum adversaries. This is, whilst not broken yet, a huge risk for the industry, and not only a risk, but something that is going to impact the industry soon enough. Looking at the quantum computing, the rate of the development of quantum computers, IBM, their latest uh, qubit technology is formed in 33 qubits, and they have uh, quantum computers on the kind of horizon one, horizon two, two, three year type time frame going above a thousand up to 2000 qubits. And the quote that I saw in terms of numbers was something like you need 2 million qubits to, to break um, RSA 2048 if they're, if those qubits are error prone, if they're not error corrected. And if you have the ability to do error corrected qubits, then you only need about uh, 5,000 or something. But ultimately, the point is, the industry is going into a direction where eventually these algorithms that we use in all of our communications today are going to be susceptible to being broken if somebody can access the packets that are flying between the users. Now, to add to this is the paranoia that there is handle going on. So handle is H-H-N-D-L. So harvest now, decrypt later. Which is a behavior that you might think, that's crazy. Why would, how much storage are you going to need to store encrypted data if you don't even know what it is? You just could capture everything. Well, that's right. But there are two types of secrets. There are secrets which are perhaps transitive in terms of their time frame, lifetime. And once they're gone, then it's not so much of an issue. They're more like a real time secret. But things which are more longer term carry much higher risk and storage is cheap and it may be said that there are many different vulnerabilities in various nation state networks that perhaps there is all this kind of harvest now, decrypt later going on. So this is what's accelerating the move to PQC. And let's have a quick look at the PQC algorithms. So we'll explore several post-quantum encryption algorithms that have shown promise in withstanding quantum attacks. It's worth saying that these, these algorithms have been um, approved by NIST or there's, a, there's an approval process by NIST where they will make an eventual recommendation for which protocols to use for both key encapsulation mechanisms and signatures. But it is worth stating at this point that some of these protocols, they haven't been around that long. So there's still a risk in that they could be broken fairly quickly. If new vulnerabilities are found through cryptanalysis or through brute force, somehow using quantum computers. It's one of those things that, you know, which the industry has to do its best to take steps to go in the right direction. But it may be that there are other steps that, that are required later on. And that brings about the concept of cryptographic agility. So... I'll come on to some recommendations at the end in the podcast, but ultimately organizations need to prepare their infrastructure to test and ensure and uh, implement change protocols for implementing uh, PQC algorithms where they deem necessary. 
They also need to consider cryptographic agility, which is the ability to change different PQC schemes as time progresses. And if those that are chosen by NIST, or if one of them chosen by NIST is, in it, is implemented in your network, that needs to be replaced because of a future vulnerability or some other type of issue, then cryptographic agility means you have the capabilities in your infrastructure to, to make those changes without then doing some kind of huge rip and replace type activity. I'll come back to that later. So for now, let's just talk briefly about the different uh, algorithms. So first of all, lattice-based cryptography. So the, the, essentially what I'm doing here is describing the, the mathematical foundation of the algorithms or protocols, which will replace the integer factorization problem protocols, such as RSA, Diffie-Helm, and, and ECC. So the first one is lattice-based algorithm. So instead of using prime numbers, what a lattice does is utilizes the mathematical properties of lattices, which are grids or networks of points in multidimensional space. And it's quite easy to imagine a, um, a, a two-dimensional space with a, a big map of dots. And the algorithm basically provides security based on the hardness of certain lattice problems, such as the shortest vector problem and the learning with errors problem. And, and these problems are where, based on particular basis vectors, what calculations do you need to do to get to other places on the, on the grid? Now, this is... You can imagine that in, in, in 2D, no problem. But the thing that makes lattice problems particularly hard for classical computing is when you start scaling the dimensions. So from 2D to 3D, you can imagine that quite easily, I'm sure. We live in a 3D world. And, but once you get up to 5, 6, 100, 500 dimensions, it's impossible for you or anybody really to imagine what that would look like, but mathematics provides us the tools to be able to describe that mathematically. And therefore, uh, calculations and, and problems can be formed in that uh, domain, which make for these tough algorithms, very tough for classical computers to solve. So in lattice-based cryptography, I mentioned the shortest vector problem. This involves finding the shortest non-zero vector within a lattice. The lattice is a mathematical structure. It's formed by a grid of points in multi-dimensional space. Solving this SVP is, multi is computationally difficult. And the security of lattice-based cryptography schemes relies on the assumption that finding the shortest vector in the lattice is challenging. The other problem I mentioned was learning with errors. This problem, uh, also known as LWE, is another key component of lattice-based cryptography. It's based on the difficulty of solving systems of linear equations with errors. In the LWE problem, random errors are introduced into linear equations, making it hard to recover the original values. The, the security of this lattice-based scheme relies on the hardness of solving this problem. Just like in RSA 2048, just like in, in any of these other PQC algorithms, it's about creating problems that quantum computers can't solve. Another prominent class of these PQC algorithms is code-based cryptography. These algorithms, they rely on error-correcting codes, which are mathematical sets of, well, constructs almost, used to detect and correct errors in data transmission. 
So the code-based cryptography, it utilizes the difficulty of decoding certain types of error-correcting codes to provide security. Examples of this include, and I'm probably going to say these wrong, <laughs> the McEllis crypto system, the Nidorita crypto system, and bit-flipping key encapsulation scheme. I'm not a crypto nerd, and there's so many different algorithms and systems to, to know. I'm just scratching the surface to, to help me and you out, but obviously you can go very deep on any of these individual algorithms if you felt inclined. So moving on, the next set of cryptography problems are multivariate polynomial equations. And these are classical polynomial equations, obviously with uh, many different depths of power to make them complicated enough. But they're employed polynomial functions with multiple variables. So that means, it, again, it's a very hard problem to try and solve these equations. And examples of the schemes used here are hidden field equations. There's one called rainbow scheme. And one I've seen previously is called Sphinx Plus, which is known as a stateless hash-based signature scheme, which I'll come on to. A bit more on multivariate polynomial equations. Um, basically, a, a polynomial equation is where you have multiple variables raised to various powers and combined through addition and multiplication operations. They're good fun in maths, uh, fun being an operative word, obviously, in air quotes. But solving systems of multi multivariate polynomial equations is com computationally challenging um, when the number of variables and the degree of the polynomial increase, uh, as, as I mentioned. So the security of these schemes is based on the difficulty of solving, solving the equation, solving the problem. Next, uh, we look at uh, hash-based cryptography, also known as one-time signature schemes. It's another category of post-quantum algorithms. Uh, these, are, these schemes rely on hash functions, which are mathematical functions that transform data into a fixed-sized output called a hash value that's predefined, and things called Merkle trees, which for me sounds a bit like Merkin, but let's not go there which are data structures. They're used for efficiently checking the integrity of large data sets. Hash-based cryptography utilizes this one-time signature where a single key is used to sign a message only once. Yeah, they take an input. It's a mathematical function again. It takes an input of any size and it produces a fixed size output. The output is typically a string of bits, which is unique to the input data. Hash functions should have properties like pre-image resistance, where it's computationally infeasible or impossible to find the original input from the hash value. So it's extremely difficult to go backwards. And it's very difficult to find two different inputs that produce the same hash. Next, the Merkle trees. A Merkle tree is basically a tree of hashes. It's a hierarchical structure that has these different hash functions. It allows checking again of the consistency of large data sets. Each leaf in the tree represents a value of a hash of a small portion of the data. And each internal node represents the hash value of its child node. So you've got this whole, that's why they call it a tree, all of these interrelations between these different hashes. And overall, it provides a verification of the data. By using a tree, obviously you have to do more 
computations on the hash to try and work out the inputs, that makes it much more difficult to, to tackle. So I'm just going to touch, I'm just going to rewind a little bit. I've mentioned all these different protocols, but let's just talk briefly about why it is that the RSA 2048, the ECC and the protocols are insecure. Really it's because of the way these, it's, it's the way these protocols are used in the process of authentication and encryption. Those two methods basically are key exchange mechanism and the signing of the creation of signatures to identify identity. That's the combination of those two things are the core of asymmetric encryption, which is used in, it's the public and private key encryption that's used in many of our applications from sending your bank details to buy something online to connections to your healthcare provider to, to store your personal data. So if these can be broken, then the, the keys can be revealed, which is why PQC is necessary. What's a chem? Well, key encapsulation mechanism is a cryptographic technique used to exchange symmetric keys between two parties over an insecure channel. It's commonly used in hybrid encryption where there's a combination of asymmetric and symmetric encryption. The chem encapsulation results in a, like a fixed length symmetric key that can be used in one of two ways. It can be used to create a data encryption key, or it can be create a key encryption key. So there's this whole, it's fairly simple to understand once you've had a good look at it, but there's a whole process of the way the keys are sent between the client and the server. These are the endpoints in the quantum world. That would be Alice and Bob. But of course, it's a combination of creating a key from private key, sharing it, and then feeding back a shared secret based on some encapsulation of the private key on the other end, or with Diffie-Hellman, it's, it's a little bit different. But ultimately, it is the exchange of passwords. You can think of it that way. So I mentioned signatures as well. Digital signature schemes are used to authenticate the identity of a sender. They detect unauthorized modifications also, and they underpin trust in the system. Signatures similar to key encryption mechanisms, they also depend on this public-private key pair. And hence a break in the public key cryptography will also affect these digital signatures. So the algorithms for both have to be changed. Now for PQC, there are mechanisms and algorithms for key encapsulation mechanisms. The, the primary one is called Crystal's Kyber. It's a, a module learning with errors based, and that's the name of the process in the lattice, a learning with errors based key encapsulation mechanism. And that's the one that's been selected by NIST at this point in time. Then for signatures, there's Crystal's Dilithium, and that's a lattice signature scheme. It's, it's different to Kyber, but it's in the same portfolio of algorithms. And there's one called Falcon, which is also lattice-based. And Sphinx Plus, I mentioned, this is a stateless hash-based signature scheme. And what I love about this is that Crystal's Kyber, Crystal's Dilithium, Falcon, they all come from Star Wars. And I haven't yet looked into why that is, but there's obviously a nerd somewhere in the team that developed Crystal's Dilithium, Crystal's Kyber, and Falcon. Maybe Falcon is not related. Millennium Falcon, it, it's, it is for me, I think. So I would, it really feels like somebody 
somebody important somewhere that had the power to agree the naming of these. Maybe there's a committee and there's a bunch of, bunch of Star Wars nerds on that committee and they did a brilliant thing to, to, to pick those names. I'm very chuffed. So my understanding with PQC and these key encryption methodologies and mechanisms is that really what we're doing here is a bit of a rip and replace. The protocols, they behave in different ways, but ultimately they are, they're used as an encryption method. The actual sequence flow of messages and so on, I don't think that changes. I'll check on that one, but that's my understanding for, for chem. And then when we look at signatures, a digital signature provides construction defining security with post-quantum signatures. So let's look into that a little bit more. Just like the previous way or the current way, I should say, of, of signing uh, messages and keys in, in the sequence of messages used in um, negotiation of encryption. What's important here is that the certificate guarantees that anniversary, even with access to the signing CA or, or Oracle, cannot forge uh, a valid signature. This is the whole point of it, because signatures are really developed for with the public and private key set up. Somebody could, could essentially adopt the identity of somebody else, share their public key instead of the original individual, and pretend to be them, and then continue with data transmission over a negotiated encrypted path. But with the signature, then there's a series of things which are done in the signing, which prove the identity. And it's done through the PKI infrastructure. It's done through a CA, which is a third party organization holding the, the certificate. And it basically brings in a third party to approve the use of the, of the signature for that particular traffic. And by doing that, by checking the signature and then verifying the identity of the end user. And there's very strong security governance around these CAs. You can get private and public CAs. Your architecture may vary, but that's basically what it looks like. So looking a bit more at the, the protocols for signatures, dilithium, crystal dilithium is, a, is based on a lattice problem again, the module learning with errors problem. The design of the algorithm is based on some kind of mathematical problem about rendering lattice-based schemes. Additionally, it offers deterministic and randomized signing. It's essentially ticking all the boxes for the certificate requirements. Falcon, on the other hand, is based on the hash and sign lattice. So it's still using lattice, but it's hash first and then sign. You get hash and sign and hash, which I'll talk about in a second. But the main principle for Falcon is compactness. It was designed in a way that achieves minimal total memory requirement. And the sum of the signature size plus the public key size is all that's needed in memory. And this is possible due to the compactness of the lattices. So it's very efficient, but the downside is that the algorithms need a floating point arithmetic support. So there's a different requirement from the operating system and the whatever mathematical libraries are available at that end mode. Really, the performance characteristics of these two signatures, they may differ based on different implementations and the hardware platform. Generally, Dilithium is known for its relatively fast signature generation, while Falcon can provide more efficient signature verification. 
in most cases, this probably doesn't matter. But when you're designing um, low power or power optimized end devices, then of course, every optimization you can make for power consumption is useful. So those can come into account. Plus, with, with signing and key encapsulation mechanisms, it used to be the keys and, and signing of the negotiation of the connection or tunnel, if you like, the encrypted tunnel, would have been made every now and again. But in order to increase the security, quite often that is happening at the beginning of every type of operation in the device. That could be your web browser. It could be your, could be your connected car. It could be your phone. It could be your, your toaster. And essentially, the more and more IoT devices there are, then the more and more key management is required. And for a network that's managing a very large IoT estate, there may be millions of, of these per, per second at the very pointy end of the spectrum. The performance of the CA is important. The performance of, the, of any kind of centralized services also need to be built into the, the, the architecture and design. And therefore, the performance characteristics of the different certificates, uh, um, signature protocols uh, may be different. Just briefly on hash, then sign the hash. Essentially, it's just the order of operations. But if you hash the message before signing it, it gives you an additional layer of security by ensuring that only a fixed size digest of the message is signed rather than the entire message. So there's an opt optimization in terms of the message size. Yeah, there's pros and cons here. And that's often the case. One thing I want to talk about was what it is that they recommend. So there will be performance trade-offs because of the size and the, the processing needed to perform these new PQC algorithms. Let me give you an example. In terms of size, if you look at the signature schemes, the traditional RSA 2048 is 256 bytes for each key and the signature. Whereas with dilithium, it starts at dilithium two, for example, is 13, 12 and so on. So it's the key sizes are much larger. And then just traditional algorithms like RSA and AES and those kind of things where they have different key lengths, it's the same for Kyber, dilithium and Falcon and Sphinx and so on. They NIST have a series of levels for the importance of the system. And this really is based on this, the technology and the intelligence or complexity needed to, to break an AES or, or a SHA algorithm. So they have these five levels. The first one starts around the hardness of AES 128, which is Kyber 512, Falcon 512, signatures with Sphinx in 128. And then halfway up at three, you've got optimal keys at AES 192. The, the, the comparison and recommended PQC algorithms there are Kyber 768, Dilithium 3. And then finally, at the top end, you've got AES 256. And the equivalents there are Kyber 1024, Falcon 1024, Dilithium 5, Sphinx, Shah 256. The more secure you want the system, the more processing power you need, the longer keys, the more complexity you need in the endpoint, the, the more processing power and power required to do that. One thing I wanted to say about the migration to PQC, moving on to migration a little bit here, is that neither the, the traditional algorithms nor the post-quantum algorithms 
are really fully trusted to protect data for the required lifetimes. So the traditional algorithms like RSA, an elliptic curve, they will fall to quantum crypto analysis eventually and will be broken by quantum computers. But the post-quantum algorithms face like major uncertainty about the mathematics, the vulnerabilities, the compliance issues, the hardware and software that's going to be built to, to run these algorithms. So there hasn't been much time for maturing. The, the state of play is that NIST is going to make formal recommendations this year, although they've already, they're only, I think, working out the final, final algorithm verification. So the ones they have selected already, mostly the ones I've mentioned on this pod, they can be tested now. You can download these, you can implement them into your system. Many hardware vendors are already supporting these and have programs for them. Remember that when it comes to implementation, it's not just about rip and replace. It's about thinking about key management. It's a multi-layered approach when it comes to how the keys are used. And in some, okay, some appliances, some systems that may be very quite simple to, to update them, but others perhaps not so easy. And there may be multiple changes needed up and down the um, security authorization authentication stack. So in terms of migration, essentially different strategies are available as you'd expect in this complex world. It's important to consider backward compatibility, the impact of performance, the risk of potential attacks during the transition phase and the support of the infrastructure that you have, software and hardware. One approach is called hybrid encryption, where a combination of both classical and post-quantum algorithms are used. This allows for a gradual transition, ensuring compatibility, and also protecting against the harvest now decrypt later attacks and concerns or paranoia by encrypting the data in such a way that it, it, it's using the PQC, but you can still use your classic uh, TLS supported group extensions and, and connectivity for the, for the connection. Uh, another way to use a hybrid approach is to just use PQC for sensitive data where you're using perhaps tunneling for traffic, which is not perhaps only has a value in terms of the data that it's carrying for a short period of time. More risk can be taken on that than it can something which is carrying sensitive data, which is permanent and carries perhaps even is owned by a third party or um, carries IP of some kind. By that, I mean intellectual property. Another strategy that is focusing on key exchange. So as compromised keys can compromise the security of the entire system, focusing there, first of all, is, is, is a good approach. So using PQC key exchange mechanisms, as I mentioned, replacing the Diffie-Hellman um, algorithms with lattice-based cryptography or the code-based key exchange that I mentioned. Um, these mechanisms provide secure ways of establishing shared secret keys between parties, even in the presence of quantum adversaries or quantum um, computers that are able to decrypt traffic. You could think of that as a first kind of line of defense. So a quick comment on security considerations. Classical cryptanalysis exploits weaknesses in algorithm design, in mathematical vulnerabilities to or implementation flaws. Whereas quantum cryptanalysis is different because it harnesses the power of quantum computers to solve the mathematical problems rather than the vulnerabilities. So both post threats to all algorithms, including those using PQC, 
And developing and adopting these cryptographic algorithms resilient against these threats is crucial. Recent attacks on the side channel implementations using deep learning based power analysis have also shown that one needs to be cautious while implementing the required PQC algorithms in hardware. So two of the recent side channel attacks were one was on Kyber, Kyber side, and, and one was on Sabre called Sabre side. Essentially these side channel attacks are merging and more may merge. I want to really touch on cryptographic agility. This is relevant for both classical and quantum cryptanalysis. And really it's the capability of your organization to adapt to emerging threats, to uh, adopt and take on stronger algorithms, comply with new standards and, and so on. And this really needs to come out in the planning and risk management of the network. The risk management comes first, but then the strategy for transformation comes afterwards. And the cryptographic agility should be built into the mindset of the strategy, right? Because if there are algorithms which are broken in the future, then the systems need to be able to take new ones as necessary. In summary, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say through all of this is it's time to just have a look at this in your organization, even if it's just one or two individuals that are given a side project to do an assessment of all of the algorithms that are in place and the, the data that each is, is protecting to give you a bit of a snapshot of your overall exposure. Quite often, organizations are going through their security audits and they're really taking a tick box approach to ensure that they prove that they're doing the right thing, maybe in one particular place rather than everywhere, or that they're just using the bare minimum necessary. And by doing that, you're totally reactive to this problem. And it's highly likely that's going to mean pain in the future when it's, when there's a time pressure. So in the meantime, you can do the very basics, which are really to just invest in some research, allocate some resources to PQC, connect with your vendors and academia if necessary, but there's a lot of information out there for you to do these first two steps. And that really prepares you and puts you in, it gives you a feeling of confidence that there isn't some quantum Armageddon coming that you might see if you might pick that up in some of the hype material that's out there, ignore it, but take it seriously. And it's time to have a look at your infrastructure. So I'm going to conclude now. It's important to remember that this threat of quantum computing on our current cryptographic system is real. But by exploring the algorithms, understanding the migration strategies and so on, you could ensure a secure and resilient future in the face of quantum adversaries. And I would say as a follow-on, I plan to have some similar sessions like this, looking at QKD and other cryptography orientated systems, solutions, and infrastructures that are evolving around the use of quantum technology in the cryptographic world. So thanks for your attention. If you made it this far, thank you very much. And I'm happy to take any requests on follow-ups to this or any additional changes or comments where I have perhaps not hit the mark. Brilliant. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So 
much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word. It would really help us out.